Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, I will be talking to Maria del Pilar Blanco and Joanna Page about the wonderful edited collection titled Geopolitics, Culture, and the Scientific Imaginary in Latin America, published by University of Florida Press in 2020. Welcome, Maria del Pilar and Joanna. Thank you for talking to me, especially in this difficult moment. Thank you. Thanks. I'm so excited to have both of you here. I think this book is wonderful, it's super important. But before we get um, into it, um, can you both um, tell us a little bit about your background? I know, Maria del Pilar, you're an associate professor in Spanish American literature and fellow in Spanish at Trinity College. Um, University of Oxford, while Joanna, you're a reader in Latin American literature and visual course, culture at the University of Cambridge. So tell us a little bit about the path that led you here, where you obtained your PhDs, how you came to academia, and to study science um, in Latin America specifically. Uh, okay, so I'll start. I'm Maria del Pilar. My, I, I received uh, my PhD in comparative literature from NYU, from New York University in the U.S., Uh, where I wrote a thesis about ghosts in North and Latin America and the literature and the cinema of North and Latin America. I think that the path to academia was pretty much set out for me uh, from the moment that I entered my first really exciting literature class when I was an undergraduate um, at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. I think that from that moment on, I, I knew that that's, this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And the way, I mean, like I mentioned, my first book is about ghosts. And and I think that there was a quite an easy kind of transition from that project to the project on science, um, because I started beyond beyond what I was studying for my book, I, I was very, very fascinated by ideas of ghosts in technology, uh, the ghosts that emerge when new technologies such as the phonograph, uh, for example, come uh, come uh, arrive in our daily in our daily lives. So I so I started I moved from there from a study of, of ghosts um, and memory in technology to a much more kind of grounded project on how people write about science in, in the late 19th century in periodicals. So and, and that's exactly where I am right now. And that's uh, what led me um, to to meet Joanna, which we will talk about in a minute, and to and to just start a conversation about many aspects of science in Latin America. I'm Joanna Page. So I did my PhD at Cambridge, um, working on Argentine literature and culture. Um, it sounds as though my path into academia was less obvious than Maria's. We haven't actually talked about this before. Um, I ended up doing a master's course uh, principally, I think, because I couldn't find a job. Um, but then as soon as I got stuck into the course, uh, loved it, found uh, loads, uh, particularly in relation to Latin America and Argentina that I was interested in. And from that point, I really haven't looked back in terms of going on to the, the PhD and then further on. Um, the first book that I wrote was on uh, contemporary Argentine cinema. Uh, but since then, um, all my books in some way have focused on the relationship between science and culture. Um, sometimes involving science fiction as a genre, um, but more often looking at uh, sort of how writers and artists and film directors engage with scientific ideas. Um, and sometimes they're doing this as a way of developing a critique of modernity um, or, or the geopolitics of knowledge or of reflecting on the role of science in society uh, and the way that science constructs itself you know, as a discipline. But often it's also a way of reinvigorating literary and artistic practice, um, of finding points of connection between disciplines that then might lead to uh, forms of cultural uh, innovation. So that's one of my main ideas that has carried through a number of different projects that I've been involved in. 
I'm so fascinated. Both of uh, your trajectories are very interesting. And I'm looking forward to actually going back to those earlier works um, because I was really happy with this collection. So let's talk about this project. Um, how you came to be editors of this volume and how you secure all of the collaborations, all of the scholars that participated in the volume. Were there perhaps some people that initially were going to participate and didn't, or conversely, that were added in later stages of the writing process? I, I mean, there are so many different people from so many different backgrounds, so I was really interested in how you, you came to that like winning team. <laughs> um, so... Here, I think it's really important to uh, for us to give you a bit of background on how on the kind of prehistory of the volume that you have in front of you. I think Joanna and I, I mean, it's it's very fair to say we've had a very long standing collaboration. I, I, Joanna and I actually met um, each other. I mean, I knew who Joanna Page was, but I had not actually met her until we, we coincided at a small conference here in Oxford on science and literature, science and culture. And then from there, we started thinking about future collaborations. And we, we ended up planning um, to apply for what is an Arts and Humanities Research Council network grant, an international network grant, which are one of these lovely pots of money that, that, that we can get and which we can you know, apply to bring different people from all sorts of places uh, to, uh, to participate in symposia and in other forms of very kind of creative collaboration. And, and so that's where we started. We had, to, we had a very long process of plotting that, that grant application, which thankfully was successful. And then we started planning what we're going to do um, and what the priority, one of the interesting things is thinking, and Jonah will talk about this, is the different priorities that we set out for ourselves as part of this research network, because we, we thought, okay, this is a great opportunity to, uh, to encounter scholars that we, that we know, and then also uh, to encounter scholars that, who are up and coming. And it was very important for us that this be a very international uh, research network. And we wanted to bring together people that we maybe might not meet in a regular conference situation. We know that conferences are incredibly expensive and not a lot of people from different parts of the world can get to them. So, so we wanted to reach out to different people and find opportunities to make these encounters possible. And Joanna, now you can say perhaps a bit more about that. Yeah, I, I mean, that prehistory, I think, is very important because as part of that application for the Research Network grant, we had to do quite a lot of thinking about what we wanted these events to achieve um, and how we were going to make them innovative, both in what they were looking at, but also um, the ways in which we were organising them. And that was really the, the background, the groundwork, if you like, for the eventual book. Uh, and the funding that we received... Um, then allowed us to put together uh, a sort of series of conferences and workshops over 2015 and 2016. Um, some of them held in the UK and some of them held in, in Latin America. And as Maria said, we thought very hard about how to set up these ways, these events in ways that would be dynamic and, and also very inclusive. So for each of the events, there were some speakers who were invited. So people we knew were working on relevant topics. But also for each event, there was an open call for papers because we suspected very strongly that there were a lot of PhD students or, or early career scholars who were starting to research uh, very important aspects of science and culture in Latin America, but that we simply weren't aware of them because they hadn't yet published widely in the field. Um, and we really wanted to be able to draw them in too. Um, in our application for funding, we'd specified that a certain part of the budget would be put aside um, to allow PhD students and early career researchers to travel uh, to those events. And I think that was one of the elements of the network that gave us the most pleasure, really, being able to facilitate those journeys, um, particularly for scholars uh, from Latin America who didn't have much institutional funding uh, available uh, for travel. And it meant that as a group, we were being introduced to lots of new research taking place in different fields. Um, it was really important that we wanted to establish conversations across disciplines, across historical periods in different regions, um, etc. So that was the background of the events that led up to the book. I don't, Maria, do you want to talk about how we then selected some of the essays that went into the book? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, each of the so just to give you an idea, we we curated four different events for this network, and it's almost like the first one was very exploratory. We wanted to see who was out there. The second one was more specific. It was about science fiction. The third one was again about science and modernity. So we broadened the topic, and then the fourth one had much more of a theoretical um, and transdisciplinary focus. That we wanted to bring a French a French theorist together with a historian of science, and and that that gives you a sense of the kind of um, conversations that were, were interesting that have been developing across the network and that were inter- interesting to orchestrate to see what would come out of that. So the the book, we did not really want to have a kind of a, a collection of conference papers. We actually wanted to establish a, converse, a, con- a continued conversation with many of the people who participated in the research network. Most of the people that uh, whose uh, essays you see here were part of the network, bar I think one person. And we were very, very uh, struck by how this had to be a discussion that could travel historical periods. And as Joanna said, that was just disciplinarily rich. I mean, we we would have lost something if this had been just a conversation about the history of science or if it had just been a literature and culture conversation. We wanted to see how the kind of the energy that came out of bringing people from these different sectors of academia together. And and so I think that we, we, we definitely aspire for that breadth and also a balance amongst periods that you can have a sense of a very long history in Latin America of, of how uh, culture, literature, science, the arts just, just come together. Yeah, and I'm so jealous. If this was happening today, like you were yeah. <laughs> organizing all of these workshops, I would have loved to participate. But I am so happy that the volume exists. And I agree that what is wonderful about it is uh, how interdisciplinary it is, uh, the breadth of like um, its time scope, all, but also many themes. So I commend you for how wonderful this came together because it has a cohesiveness that is very striking. And so maybe we can move to to some of the structure. Um, so there's an introduction to the volume, but there's also smaller introductions to each of the five sections of this of this volume. So. Tell me a little bit about how you wrote that. Did you write this together? Uh, did each of you wrote certain sections? How did that work? Yes. Well, we approached it in different ways. So the introduction to the whole book, we each contributed different parts and then uh, commented on each other's drafts, rewrote parts of them, wove them together to form a, a more coherent whole. Um, and then, as you said, each of the five thematic sections has a section introduction. Those were very important to us, partly because of the breadth of the book that we've been talking about. And um, we felt that if we didn't bring them together in that way, there was a risk that the individual essays uh, might not come together in a way that would be very helpful to the reader. So we thought of the essays as case studies, if you like, that exemplified uh, particular approaches um, or particular ideas. And we then brought those together in the section introduction. So we contextualized, if you like, the the different essays and and brought out the links between them. And we felt that the book would be much more valuable to readers uh, in that way. Um, And for those section introductions, uh, initially we split them up between us so that one person was in charge of writing the first draft. Um, But again, we then went through a sort of more dynamic process of revisions where we would comment, add bits, etc. Uh, I think as far as I remember, Maria, we had a lot of Google Docs <laughs> open that we were co- co-writing and editing uh, along the way. The other thing that we did, because we did want to make the project as collaborative as possible, is that we quite unusually, I think, for an edited collection, we circulated all the essay drafts amongst all the collaborators and asked them to give feedback to each other if they wish to do that, but also to suggest ideas that we might want to develop in the section introduction, um, so points of contact between the different uh, essays, etc. So that in that way as well, that the book arose out of um, this series of conversations uh, that Maria was talking about. Fantastic. And I think those little introductions are so useful for potential readers that may want to, let's say, get at the topic of modernity. And they go and check out that introduction and they can see how you're intervening in that literature. So it's a super useful, it's a super useful resource. I've been sending uh, some pictures to friends being like, look, this can be of use for you. So that's fantastic. Um, (laughs) 
That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, so, okay, let's let's talk about some of the pillars of the book, the foundations. So I actually think the title of the book, um, it's a great way to start. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your choice. Why geopolitics, culture, and the scientific imaginary? I'm especially interested in talking about geopolitics of science in Latin America. Why is it important to think and write about this? And what about imaginaries? Why is it important to theorize and write about the imagination of Latin American scientists, thinkers, and more generally subjects who produce knowledge? And I, I think here scientific imaginaries can be understood more broadly. So it's also about um, ideas about Latin Americans as producers of knowledge or not producers of knowledge and how this volume is questioning that. So I'm very interested in this, in the creative and potentially subversive uses of imagination in this volume. And I, the fact that you come from a literature background, I think, explains a lot. But I think it was such, a, such an important part of the, of the, of the collection. So I, I would like to hear you more talk about that. So I can start talking about the the selection of of keywords for our title. I think, especially as we envisaged the collection coming together, we noticed that all the essays were addressing, in some sense, the the whole geopolitical question, because geopolitics is very much about where science is made, um, how science gets disseminated, who gets to grab all the bits of science, and who and and how does it reach those different places? So, and and I think this is all part of a huge geopolitical ne uh, nexus. And so we needed to have that word there because it's it's um, it's science, obviously, it can be produced in isolation, but then it just kind of, you know, it, it goes beyond the boundaries of, of, of locality. And in terms of culture, well, as you can see, and we are coming from, uh, from literature, but we're also very interested in studying film and studying visual art. We are very interested in seeing how science does not remain discreetly within the laboratory and with the scientists, but actually is something that... Uh, producers of culture, be it a theater director or a, a plastic artist or a, a novelist, how they can use science to broaden the horizons of their art. And also culture is, is, is a much bigger term than just the arts, of course. I mean, it's basically, uh, it, it has something to do with the formation of, of a national culture. Uh, it has, it has, it has is, is a word that has many more ramifications. And in terms of imaginaries, well, for me, some of the, what, what, especially going through the conferences, the symposia that we have, and also just reading the chapters that we contributed, I'm, I'm very struck by the product, right? About how, how in these kind of developments, for example, a work of art that has, that is informed by science, I'm very interested in seeing how particular producers of, of a work of art or of a book, they're able to just, I don't know, just make something new by bringing in different bodies of knowledge together. Um, and I, and in, in Latin America, I'm also, uh, this is very relevant to my own work, I'm just interested also in seeing how knowing a little bit about something about science it's spread. It, it, it's it's something that you know takes hold of of people's imaginations, and it becomes part of popular culture, as well. Um, and and I'm thinking here of the formation of different genres uh, of literature, thanks uh, thanks to the benefits of knowing something about science, and that imagination itself takes flight because of that knowledge of science. And that's that's as to us, it was as fascinating as the development of a theorem or, or something like that, that was much more strictly hard science. Uh, yeah, I mean, just to add a couple of points to expand what Maria was uh, saying there. Um, I think we felt coming to this, that there have been some really important books on the history of science in Latin America um, that focus on some of those geopolitical questions, uh, particularly in relation to the dependent position of Latin America in relation to global science, um, the difficulties of securing funding, lack of institutional support, etc. And all of that, of course, is extremely important. But we wanted to add to those by telling some other stories um, about how the science and the imaginaries of science um, have developed in Latin America that perhaps haven't been given so much emphasis. Um, and to think about how those histories disrupt uh, sort of conventional narratives um, about the evolution of global science. And that was also partly why the idea of scientific imaginaries um, was important because we wanted to focus not just on sort of how scientific knowledge is produced, but how 
scientific ideas and the idea of science itself, how that has been imagined, contested, reinvented in Latin America, and in cultural texts as well, for example, and to highlight the importance of those wider discourses. Um, science has played obviously particular roles in the history of the region and, and that's affected how it's perceived today. So, for example, the close relationship between science and positivism in many countries in Latin America at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. Um, that means that science has often been associated with the kind of modernizing programs um, brought in by elites um, that ultimately deepens social and economic inequalities. Um, but thinking about uh, sort of imaginaries, the imagination, uh, you mentioned creative and subversive uses of the imagination. Is that um, all of that sort of also allowed us to take a broad approach to science, not just as a, an elite academic activity tied to global or national centers of power, um, but also as a local and popular everyday practice. So just to give an example, in, um, in one of the essays by Hernán Comastri, um, he looks at some of the letters written by ordinary citizens of Argentina who were invited in the 1950s to write to Perón to suggest uh, sort of new scientific or technological inventions that could be funded by the state. Um, and he looks at what those letters reveal about how individuals imagined science and technology and their relationship uh, with those, but also with the state. Uh, so different ways of thinking about how science touches uh, individuals, but also becomes part of uh, national discourses, I think was really important to us. Yeah, and I believe, I mean, how, so how the introduction starts, it's like what you're trying to do is, you know, provide a very tricky balance between admitting there are asymmetries of power in Latin America as elsewhere in the world, but there's also uh, all these other instances in which scientists, lay people are using science, are thinking about science in creative ways, you know, in ways that are not just like the product of domination, quote unquote. So I, I, I think the, the introduction is wonderful for this, for, for a reader that wants to see how the nu like the nuances of this kind of thing, right? Um, so I think another essential intervention is how you and the contributors of, of this volume question linear understandings of the development, quote unquote, and progress, quote unquote, again, of science. Uh, you instead propose a, a relational understanding of scientific knowledge. So can you please explain this to our listeners and perhaps discuss some of the most important critique to those Eurocentric narratives or, or histories of science in which Latin America is portrayed as periphery or as unimportant in the global production of scientific knowledge? And, and I think I want to point out to our readers that I see this critique, even in the way you write the introduction. So among many other things, you quote almost exclusively scholars that are Latin Americans or that are writing from Latin America. You also include quotes in Spanish, which I know it can seem like, yeah, of course, but sometimes scholars don't include the full quote in the text um, and instead they, they present just the translation. So, so I, I thought that was wonderful. Like, of course, I'm a native Spanish speaker and I was reading the Spanish quotes, but I think it's wonderful that you do that. Um, so these are, I imagine, very deliberate choices. So um, maybe you're making your point about decolonial critics of science, etc. So I wonder if you can talk a, a little bit about this. Um, if I may, I mean, I have to say in terms of the translations of quotes, because I've, had, I've dealt with a number of publishers up to this point, I have to thank uh, uh, University of Florida Press for allowing us to have both languages, because I will say that there are some publishers that sometimes say, well, you know, you, need, you can only present the translation. So I, I will say that I, I am very grateful to them for allowing us to present parallel texts, especially because we're very interested in, as you say, showing the original texts written in Spanish or, or in Portuguese. Um, so I will say that you ask us about uh, knowledge, scientific knowledge as relational. That was absolutely fundamental to the way that we were thinking and how to organize the, the, the collection and how to organize our thoughts about what we thought about uh, science uh, in Latin America. And so relational can, it, it's, it's, it just breaks down the kind of verticality or the, the kind of hegemonic story of science that, you know, it doesn't just get, something doesn't get discovered in, in England or France uh, or Germany or whatever, and then gets trickles down to the, to the peripheries. Actually, 
we wanted to, to present an idea of science that was much more horizontal, in which actually we see that there are different networks and pockets of no knowledge that are created. And they're actually even more explosive and wonderful when it's different uh different cultural groups coming together and saying, aha, you know, I, so we, we, there's a problem and we see that our counterpart has discovered how to deal with X problem from, from any area of the natural world or, or something like that. So that was very, very fundamental for us uh, to, uh, as, as a way of understanding the way that's, that uh, science was, has been developing for centuries um, in, in Latin America. So one uh, one of the things that we thought was very wonderful in, in plotting throughout the chapters by our contributors was the way in which science uh, and scientific knowledge is developed in many sites across the Americas over the course of centuries through encounters. And sometimes these are intercultural encounters. And I'll give you the example of uh, one of our cha uh, contributors' chapters. That's uh, the chapter by Heidi Scott. Uh, she is she is a geographer and, uh, and and historian of colonial Spanish America, and she and her chapter she traces how indigenous knowledge about mining uh, affected and pretty much transformed uh, many early colonial practices. So it's in really in in those moments uh, which are it, 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 you know you can see the site of relation where one body of knowledge that is held by one group comes into contact with another and then the whole a whole kind of discipline or subdiscipline starts developing and so that's that's basically something that we we wanted to uh, to underline in the sense that science Yes, it, it might emerge, it, you know, people from Europe who came to Latin America, they might come with a body of knowledge, but that body of knowledge continues to be transformed the moment that they arrive in Latin America and come to come into contact with another body of knowledge. Yeah, that, I mean, that wealth of indigenous knowledge and, and how that influenced European science, that's something that hasn't yet been fully recognized. Um, obviously, there is uh, important work going on in relation to that. Um, some of the essays in this book, as Maria was saying, contribute directly to that effort. Um, so, for example, uh, the essay by Yari uh, Beres Marin, uh, the one by Edward Chauka, both of those are very relevant here. So the first looks at how indigenous ideas and practices in relation to medicine were assimilated into Spanish colonial texts, um, and the other, how they played an important part in the foundation of modern psychiatry in Peru. Um, we have come to think about uh, a number of the essays in this volume as taking part in an effort that we would think about as uh, decolonizing. Obviously, there's a, a straightforward way in which they do that in terms of bringing to attention the impact of indigenous knowledge that you know perhaps has been often overlooked in global histories of, of Latin American science, but also global histories of science. Um, but they can be decolonizing in uh, lots of different ways as well. Um, so many decolonial thinkers in the Latin American context are interested in challenging European narratives of modernity um, in which scientific rationalism uh, supersedes other kinds of knowledge in a linear fashion as we move toward ever greater progress and civilization. Um, and instead thinking about how you might construct alternative ideas about modernity, which are not exclusionary in that way. Uh, which fold together different kinds of knowledge and practice. Um, it's more about thinking about global maternity as a, as a set of encounters and exchanges um, in which Latin America plays a, a hugely significant role. So a lot of the essays also decolonize science in the way that they show how its apparently abstract and neutral operations are very much embedded in the social and the cultural, or, or thinking about how the authority of science is, is mediated by the nation uh, or by Western centers of knowledge, for example. Fantastic. This is this is such an important critique, right? And I think what you show is that the genealogy of these critiques, you know, goes way back in time. Uh, this is not like a new critique, of course. And I think you're showing like the new ways in which the scholars are kind of uh, advancing these critiques, which is super important. Um, I think in this moment in time specifically, uh, it's super timely too. So that that is a very important part of the book. Um, another important part 
and I've, you mentioned this, right, is the emancipatory ends of scientific thinking in Latin America. You know, this is not to say that all Latin American science was has emancipatory purposes, but there are chapters in which, you know, you explore or the authors explore emancipatory ends. So tell us a little bit, I, I, I'm interested in if you think Latin America is situated in a particularly productive position that allows it to think about emancipation differently than, let's say, Western European countries or those countries that are dominant in global histories of science uh, in those narratives, right, in those Eurocentric narratives. So I wonder if you think Latin America's position in the geopolitics of, of knowledge production kind of provides a different, you know, place to speak from that you find particularly useful or something like that. I think um, we could add to the to the concept of emancipation that you that you highlight here. I think we can add the idea of um, of utopianism and utopian projects. And and I think of course, obviously uh, this is a volume that contains a number of chapters on nineteenth century uh, Latin America, and which is which is the area that I that I focus much more in, in my own research. And of course, you know, come the the wars of independence across uh, across South America and Central America, you have a number of utopian projects. You have a number of uh, sites of formation of a nation. And I think we, we can see this in a number of ways. We can see those projects as projects that are very, very Eurocentric, even in in the repudiation of Europe uh, and, and the mother country and, and through, as, as the colonial uh, relation has, has been destroyed. Um, but we, we see, obviously, in the 19th century, the arrival of ideas from France, from England, etc., um, that uh, start uh, affecting the, the very political formation of these new nations. At the same time, I think that there is room also to grow uh, as independent nations of science, as, as, as nations where, as we have said before, this indigenous knowledge has come to light little by little, uh, and, and that starts also becoming part of the national story. So we have a number of, uh, of chapters. I'm thinking here about, of the chapter by Miguel de Asua, uh, who's an Argentinian uh, historian of science, where he is plots how the new republics are using science to define their own independence, to keep thinking about that, that, that uh, process of emancipation. And then you have a chapter like the one by Gabriela uh, Nusei, who, which is fascinating because, you know, this, she's writing about the fin de siècle. She's writing about the end of the 19th century uh, when Argentina which has, is, has acquired a kind of pride in its own uh, scientific culture. And add to that the fact that Argentina has some of the best kept fossils uh, that, uh, of dinosaurs that you, can, that, that you can imagine. So it becomes a very, very fascinating story of the negotiation of whose science that is, who it belongs to, and how you want to create autochthonous spaces for science. Uh, that, that is also quite a, uh, there's a protectivism involved in, in, in that story. And, and it becomes a story of kind of intrigue, of scientific refutation and journals uh, being written, uh, are, uh, scientific journals are, are kind of documenting the back and forth of who's, who's right and who's wrong. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to see this development and this rise of, of a conversation where Latin America starts talking back uh, to, the, to Western Europe and to, and to other, especially in the US, for example, later on as a big nation uh, for science. Mm. Yeah, those ideas were really important to us in putting together this volume because I, I think uh, all of us can think of quite quickly ways in which scientific theories have been used for political ends in Latin America. Um, and most of those would be discriminatory or repressive, you know, thinking about uh, sort of pseudoscientific theories um, about race, for example, um, different ways in which science has been used to shore up the status quo for elites. Um, but it was also really important to think uh, about how science has been put to use in these uh, much more uh, utopian projects that were more about uh, freedom and self-expression. Um, we've already mentioned the essay by Hernán Comastri, which looks at how science and technology become democratized in certain senses uh, under Perón in Argentina. But there are also essays that address similar uh, ideas, but in very different ways. So Bryce Otes León, for example, writes about the Peruvian intellectual José Carlos Mariátegui, who exposes uh, how science has been used to further European projects of 
progress and particularly capitalism. Um, but he then, in quite an ironic move, um, draws on Einstein's theory of relativity to underpin a Marxist project for political emancipation uh, in Latin America. So we very much wanted to focus on perhaps some of those um, more emancipatory uses of science that were not always covered uh, in other works of scholarship on this area. Yeah, and I will add that here you also include Linael Castillo's work. Mm. Yeah, She was the first person I interviewed here. So, oh, right. So maybe our listeners uh, can check her either the interview or this chapter as well. Uh, so that, that chapter also looks at like emancipation, science as emancipation, particularly in Colombia and Jose Maria Ampere's critical writing. So yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. So many, many things that listeners can just go and, and, and consult and look and read. Um, so I think we can, we, we should talk about the, what you call the intercultural and interdisciplinary approach in your book. And I want to tie this up with the with the, the importance of scientific writing as an artistic and literary form and, and the potentialities in the exchange between science and fiction. So you've you've mentioned this and I think this what this is one of the my favorite parts of the book, especially because it's one of the things I know the least. So it's wonderful to be introduced to a new topic, new conversations. So tell us why was it important um, for you as editors to, to foreground interculturality and interdisciplinarity? And I think you've mentioned some of this, but I, I'm wondering if you can explain to our listeners uh, why, why you say in the book that in a way it's been kind of, let's put it in quotes, easier uh, for Latin Americans, you know, scientists, but lay people as well, to see that the boundaries between disciplines and between, you know, what Donna Hathaway called great divides like nature and culture. Why, why has it, it been easier for Latin American thinkers to see that those are artificial rather than fixed or settled? Um, I just, I, yeah, I just want you to talk about this and about the importance to include chapters that are dedicated to the relationship between the artistic uh, and science. Sure. Uh, there are quite a few questions there. Um, all of them really interesting. So we decided to emphasize this uh, interdisciplinary and intercultural approach, partly because we felt that it very much um, speaks to the history of science in Latin America, but also we hope perhaps to a more uh, decolonized future. And many scholars that have started to write about decolonizing science and decolonizing knowledge more generally have emphasized that one of the most important tasks um, is to take that knowledge, which currently acquires greater authority as it becomes more abstract and more universal, and reconnect it with spheres of knowledge and practice that are embedded in local contexts and very specific uh, cultural imaginaries. Um, th thinking about those boundaries between academic uh, disciplines that you're referring to, um, as we know, they're, they're always culturally determined, often quite arbitrary, um, the product of historical accidents. Um, if it has been, quote unquote, to use your term, easier uh, for Latin Americans to see the artificial nature of those boundaries, and um, perhaps that's because it's been harder uh, to match discourses that are emanating from the global north with the complexity of local, political, economic or cultural situations. And I think from those disjunctures, um, a critique of knowledge production has often emerged. Uh, in some ways, thinking about science has had to be interdisciplinary and intercultural in Latin America, um, because that's the nature of that context. But I think what's very interesting is that the value of that approach is now being much more fully recognized by full philosophers of science elsewhere. Um, and there's an extremely important contribution here that Latin Americans thought can make and is making because of that whole history of thinking about science in interdisciplinary and intercultural ways. Uh, and some of the essays in the book draw attention to this. Um, so whether in the field of political ecology, uh, so for example in the essay by Jens Andermann, um, or in cybernetics and uh, com complexity theory, which is the topic uh, chosen by Mara Polgoski-Oscura. Uh, fantastic. So now I think it's time for us to move to these exciting sections. I mean, you've kind of mentioned some of the chapters. Uh, But I just want to flag it to our listeners that uh, the book is divided in five sections, uh, which are thematic sections. And I think we should move to, to section one. 
so this section um, starts with an episode told by Darwin in the Bodges of the Beagle, where he describes the visit to an estate on the Rio Macai in Brazil. So Darwin is struck by the vastness of the land and how little of it is actually cultivated, and also about the facets of life in a quote-unquote slave country. Um, in Darwin's account, we see a juxtaposition between European liberalism and scientific exactitude on the one hand, and criollo inefficiency and cruelty on the other. So tell us, uh, why did you choose to start with this anecdote? And how did the chapter of this, of this section propose to revise some of the binaries and assumptions behind that ad- anecdote that this goes way beyond Darwin and extends to uh, the ways in which we see the relationship between European powers and Latin America. So maybe here Maria El Pilar can tell us a little bit about her own chapter that is included in this in this section and how that chapter intervenes in this discussion. Sure. So when I was setting off to write this, this section introduction, I felt it was a, re- a really good starting point uh, for the book would be uh, to bring in someone from one of the big nations of science from the 19th century. And that's, of course, Charles Darwin, as you said, coming from Great Britain. And of course, you know, when we think of Darwin, we think of him as one of the paragons, as kind of like paradigm shifting characters and scientific persona of of science, of a scientific history. And his, his research, we could say, and especially because of that voyage of the Beagle, was in many ways transformed by landing and, and traveling and collate, uh, collating samples from a Latin American space. So I thought that, uh, I thought we would begin there because one of the things that always emerged in the conversations that Joanna and I had at the beginning uh, of our collaboration was that so often we think of Latin America and the spaces of, La- of uh, that we, of what we know as Latin America in the Central and, and South America as kind of the open playground for European uh, explorers and and scientists who just come and collect and then just go and make their science in scientific laboratories in Western Europe. So I thought that we would we would start there uh, as a, as a kind of you know a, a primal scene, as, if you will, of what we have always come to know assume is Latin America space and science. And actually, it's exactly as you have heard from us what we wanted to undo the narrative that we wanted to undo throughout the book. And Darwin, in that in that moment in the Rio Macai, is he's he's saying he's acknowledging this kind of very fertile space, but he also has to impose that hegemonic idea of I am the one with the morals and I am the one with the with, with the knowledge. And then he and 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 he, he it could have been so much better, but of course he was a man of his time. And this, I think, is a good starting point to open up into those chapters that we're looking at that, that slowly and in different ways going to undo or just kind of question the, uh, the, the assumptions of hegemonic scientific formation that we see in Darwin. In this section, as you know, we have chapters uh, by, uh, by Gabriela Nusey and Jens Andermann's chapter, and we've, we've talked about those briefly. And then there's also uh, my chapter, and I think each of them is, is about the the, the Latin American imagination seeing spaces, na- different national spaces, different geographical spaces within the continent and within the uh, the greater Latin American region, and to seeing them in another way, seeing them uh, to kind of open up new questions about science. Uh, and that's uh, in my chapter what I thought, you know, you, you have somebody who, uh, in, in my figure, Jose Joaquin Arriaga, who was a, a Mexican uh, naturalist uh, and man of science, you see somebody who's looking looking to the West, definitely looking to Western Europe for his models, but also trying to do something new uh, with those models as they kind of start developing in Mexico. What do you do, uh, for example, with the educational establishment, how do you teach science to children in 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 this space uh, of, of the 19th century, where you know you don't have the scientific infrastructure that the that Western Europe has or that the United States have? But how how do you use what you can, and how do you narrativize science so that you can create a population that can 
discuss science, that can think through science. Um, I, I was fascinated by his development of this new literary genre, that the, the novelita eh, científica, the little scientific novel, which was, you know, meant to be a popular form, but it was of an instructive popular form. And, and, his, and this is another utopian project. In his utopianism, what he was thinking, you know, if you start there, if you start with a kind of accretive model of education and of writing about science and different people start reading it, then you're going to have a nation that is going to be able to talk science through uh, through this uh, narrativization of science. And I think in, in the other two contributions that we have in this section, you, ha you have that competition uh, for the, the, the bone wars that, that, that Gabriela is looking at. And in Jens's fascinating chapter, Jens Andermann's chapter, you have uh, the, the formation of the anthrop anthropocentric theory from the study of the landscape in, uh, in a very, very specific part of the Southern Cone uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. So we're going to skip sections two and three, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so just to flag it to our listeners, section two is titled Latin America as a Site of Knowledge Production. And I think, you know, this title rightfully suggests that this is a very important section because This summarizes the agenda of many Latin American scholars who want to demonstrate that science is also produced in Latin America. Um, and, you know, the region is not merely a receptor of foreign um, European knowledge. And this is something that we can also see in other chapters in other sections. But for listeners interested in that, they can go and look at that section. And the third section is titled Science and the Modern Nation. And here there are a lot of chapters that are interested in uh, what we've been talking about, the emancipatory ends of scientific thinking. So listeners who want to kind of learn more about that, go to that section. Um, so this leads us to section four, uh, which I, as I've said before, is the section I probably know the least. So this section is titled Utopian Convergence Between Science and the Arts. So tell us what are some of the topics that are more recently have drawn the attention of scholars in this, you know, theme. Um, here you mentioned Bruno Latour and how he poses that Western modernity is built on the suppression of admixtures between the modern and the non-modern, and yet how science and technology in Latin American literature has refused to separate those two things. So why is that the case? And in this section, you know, there's a chapter that Joanna wrote. So maybe she can tell us a little bit about that chapter and this section as a whole. Sure. Um, so I'm thinking about the, the whole section to start off with. Literature and, and other forms of art um, have often played a really important role as basis for the critique of science and technology and, and their impact on society. Um, but what we wanted to focus on here is another significant strand in Latin American culture and um, that borrows ideas from science to forge new literary and artistic techniques uh, or to imagine new points of connection and exchange between disciplines. Um, there's a really important history in Latin America of writers borrowing from science in order to innovate within literature. Um, and some more recent examples I worked on in an earlier book that I published um, called Creativity in Science in Contemporary Argentine Literature. And that looks at how three writers have drawn on mathematical and scientific theories to create models of literary uh, creativity. Um, and my essay for, for this volume, for Geopolitics, Culture and the Scientific Imaginary, um, that extends some of these uh, ideas and looks particularly at theories of reading um, developed by two writers, uh, Jorge Volpi from Mexico and Marcelo Cohen from Argentina, and how these uh, theories of reading intersect with uh, recent advances in cognitive science and revisions to Darwinist models of evolution. Um, I'm very interested in, in how they understand reading, uh, not just as an activity that happens on a symbolic level, um, made up of words or, or mental images, but also as a material phenomenon, you know, the way our, that our brain chemistry is involved, um, or how reading draws us into a relationship with the rest of human society, uh, but also with the non-human world. Um, and that sounds as though it could, in some senses, be a, a reductive way of thinking about reading. But actually, I find that it's the reverse because they use this to suggest that that reading and, and listening to stories is foundational to the evolution of human culture and society um, and that symbiosis and social cooperation might be more important than competition and the survival of the fittest in thinking about that evolution. That's, if you like, the kind of post-Darwinist uh, approach. Uh, and that in turn leads to a reflection 
on how certain stories about evolution have underpinned the Western belief in capitalism as the more natural form of economic system and how it might be possible to tell other stories. Um, so that essay sits alongside uh, another couple in the section, um, one by Soledad Querelac, uh, which focuses on Argentine magazines uh, around the beginning of the, the, the 20th century. Um, that attempt to synthesize realms of knowledge and experience that might be considered antithetical, you know, such as science and theosophy, positivism and spiritualism. And then an essay by Julio Prieto, uh, which is looking at the work of three Latin American poets, um, but particularly the Peruvian poet and artist Jorge Eduardo Eilson, um, and, and how his work intertwines different knowledge traditions. So firstly, modern mathematics and physics, Secondly, the avant-garde tradition in art and poetry. And thirdly, the Andean Kipu, which I'm sure many listeners may know, uh, is a writing and computing system that predates uh, the arrival of the Spanish. So what brings all the essays together in this section is the way in which their texts they're working on uh, refuse to divide knowledge into categories of the modern versus the non-modern and the scientific versus the artistic but to think about the kinds of creativity that emerge from the intersection of those. Um, and also to can think about literature and art as very powerful sites of knowledge production uh, in their own right. Yeah, and let's just say that now I want to go and read Jorge Volpi and Marcelo Cohen after <laughs> that chapter. So that was wonderful. Uh, thank you for that. And I think this, this leads us to the final, the last section. And I think we should talk about it because... It's titled Science, Epistemology, and the Critique of Modernity. And I think this is such an important section for some of those foundations we talked about already. And, you know, the critique of modernity is so important in the literature overall, and not just in Latin America, right? There's so many different places in the world where authors have thought about critiques of modernity. So, so I just would like you to talk about a Latin American thinkers, their particular position in the production of these critiques of modernity um, and how they and the writers of the chapters at the same time confront universalist epistemologies with the force of the local and historical. But by doing so, how they question yet another binary, um, that between the global and the local. So tell us about this section and why is it um, that you posted that the scientific is always bounded to the political in Latin America in ways that perhaps are not as obvious in the European metropolitan centers. Though this doesn't mean that there's no, <laughs> that the, the scientific and the political is not bounded in Europe. Of course it is. But you say that it's, sometimes this has been more, more obvious to Latin American thinkers and, and scholars. Yeah, I mean, I think that that question of the critique of modernity in Latin America is really strongly associated with a lot of the projects that we discuss in the book. Um, and particularly in this final section, we wanted to bring together writers and intellectuals who were explicitly challenging some of the sort of fundamental principles of European uh, narratives of modernity, um, including linearity um, and universalism. Uh, so in one of the essays by Carlos uh, Fonseca Suarez, he creates a genealogy of, of fictional Latin American inventors uh, taken from texts by Borges, Garcia Marquez and Pilia. And those help us think through models of uh, universality, uh, progress, and modernity in the Latin American context. Um, as we've mentioned before, um, Bryce um, Ortiz Leon shows how Mariategui borrows from European science in order to subvert European thought and the logic of coloniality uh, by putting it to very different and revolutionary ends. Um, and then uh, finally, the essay by Mara Polgowski Escurra. Um, focuses on the work of the Argentine physicist and epistemologist Roland Garcia. Um, and his work has been very influential in the fields of complexity theory, uh, systems theory, and cybernetics in Latin America. Uh, and part of the importance of his work lies in the emphasis that it places on the local and the historically contingent within global processes. And um, he's very committed to thinking about how human action and natural phenomena intersect in non-linear and often culturally specific ways. Um, it does seem that to engage with scientific ideas and practices in Latin America often means confronting universalist epistemologies uh, with the force of the local and the historical, uh, what doesn't fit, um, the unexpected consequences of policies, um, events that are unmapped that don't fit into uh, linear European narratives of progress and modernity. 
to question the relations of power that allow certain narratives of modernity and science to prevail over others. We produced a short video in, in lieu of a book launch. Um, you can find it on YouTube uh, if you search for the book's title. I'm mentioning that to any listeners who are particularly interested in this last section, um, because the three writers um, who uh, are the authors of the essay in this section talk uh, themselves about their own essays in that book launch. And of course, they summarize them <laughs> much better than I could. So I've taken so much of your time already. And this conversation has been wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm sure many listeners will just go and buy the book. So, but just to finish off, tell us how you think this book um, is talking to the present. So I, I can think of so many different ways, and especially in this context of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic. But what, what do you think? How does your book speak to this very difficult moment that we're living through? I think it would be it would be good to approach it kind of on a practical level and then kind of speak about about broader ramifications. Um, this this is a very hefty question, I think, and it really took it's just taking me back to to how the network, how the book uh, came to be um, after that. And you know, we we were very lucky that we had in person contact with most of the contributors to this volume. And then that contact, obviously, once you close the network, once the conferences are over, that contact becomes virtual. So in a way, you know, the, the, this is the way that we can make scholarship now. It's all virtual. It, it, it's, it's, it's all done through email, through phone, through, you know, lots and lots of FaceTime or, or Skype. And so we think, you think, okay, so, so this, this is something that can happen. At the same time, there are so many difficulties that are presented by this crisis that I cannot even begin uh, uh, to list them all. But we, we started talking about the importance of, uh, of having early career researchers. And Joanna and I have now had, we're now seasoned in our careers as academics. And, and we know that a lot of the, the most fundamental and the strongest ties that you create with other academics is by meeting them in person by networking in person in a conference setting. And we wonder whether these kinds of collaborations, which has been so fruitful and it's been, you know, in years that we have been working together, we wonder if this kind of collaboration uh, is going to be entirely transformed. Uh, and we wonder if it's going to be for the better, right? Because I, I think it's great to be able to bring in different people especially people that you might not know and whose work is, is just starting or work that you, know, you might not have seen because it's not getting published. And, and we're wondering what's going to happen with that level of academic camaraderie and academic contact and also that kind of the, the ability to, to provide immediate feedback in, in, a, in a much more personalized manner. And yeah, and, 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 and perhaps, um, Joanna, we might want to talk about what is science right now, the ideas of uh, Right now, how science is so important uh, because we have people in, in the UK, our prime minister is always talking about following the science or not. And then you have people who don't want to follow the science. And so it's become, a, you know, a big, big buzzword, but it's become, as you can see, a very politicized concept. And so here you see again how science and politics are obviously always together um, and always enmeshed with one another. And we're seeing something that uh, we're seeing a, a, a pandemic that is a kind of great leveler because it's become widespread all across the globe. But then you, we also have, even within communities that feel small, like a town in the United Kingdom, you're starting to see, again, a, a kind of very hegemonic structure. And you see how there is a lot of disadvantage that is a racialized disadvantage uh, that is, you know, is also very, very contingent on issues of class. So these are all kind of relations that we that we were exploring throughout the book and that we're now seeing happen right before our eyes on a much, much broader level, on a massive level. But it's it's very it's very much the, the, the topic of the present. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. And I, well, first, as, as to the conference, to the practical aspects of this, I must admit, I've been affected by it. I was, I organized a panel for a national conference here in the US, uh, co-organized it, and, you know, it was canceled. And so, yeah, these are the, the new challenges that we have to face. And I guess, yeah, there's so many things that this book speaks to. 
the with the word science, right? Used so easily by so many different people and in different ways. So I think this is fantastic and and such a timely contribution. Um. So just to finish off, before I let you go, tell tell us what are you working on right now? What are your future plans? Uh, sure, I'll start. Um, so I recently finished a book manuscript um, with the title Decolonizing Science in Latin American Art. And that was based on a project funded by the British Academy. Um, and it brings together a, a new corpus of art projects over the past 10 to 15 years um, that draw on scientific methods or ideas. Um, and I'm very interested in the different ways that we can understand these projects as decolonizing uh, science and nature. Um, longer term, I'm planning another book-length project on art and science in Latin America that will look specifically at questions of environmental justice. Um, and I'm hoping that that's going to be the springboard uh, for a much broader collaborative project um, on art, science and environmental justice in the global south. Um, I'm now completing a manuscript called, uh, for now, well, I think that's a good title, uh, uh, Modernist Laboratories. Science and the Poetics of Progress in Fan de Siècle, Spanish America. And as you may have surmised, I'm very much looking at periodicals and popular periodicals and their dissemination of, of science and, and also the fascination in the 19th century and the overuse with the, uh, of the word progress. That's, that's really what I'm fascinated in right now. And, and I'm, taking, uh, I'm looking at periodicals from across the region, from Cuba, from, uh, and, and from Mexico, and also from uh, expat communities in the United States. So that's, that's what I'm working on right now. And further down the line, I'm already starting to think of a third project, which will be on, on weakness. Um, and and will, which will very much have, and especially the weak child, uh, and, and that will have a kind of uh, a science and literature spin to it. Well, wonderful. All of those projects, those many projects sound fantastic. I, I'm looking forward to reading them. Uh, and I want to thank you both for such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you for your excellent questions. Yes. I really got a lot of uh, thoughts going for us. Yeah. Yeah. And listeners, go buy this book. It's <laughs> wonderful. Yes, please do. Thank you. 